Hello, good people. <laughs> Thursday, <laughs> noon. WHBK 88.5. Oh, my goodness. Radio. I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. As always, we are up here bringing the voices and the stories and the perspectives of folks reshaping our culture for the more equitable and the more creative. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here with the two people we have, or I have. Yeah, how are you feeling today, Dave? Man, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about what's about to happen. I'm, uh, I'm calling it. I'm calling the shot. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. You're just pointing also, toward the outside of the Reynolds Club right yeah, now. <laughs> also, in life, like the last... 36 hours have been like a good energy flow for me oh, that's trying wonderful. to ride this wave into this young weekend. Yeah. You got uh, something big happening next in, week. Yeah, yes. In about in seven days. days. Yeah. Seven, seven days. Next week actually is my birthday. Oh next episode goodness. will be a birthday episode. Holy moly. We didn't even plan for that. How, uh, what's, what number are we talking about? Oh, here? we're talking about the big two five, baby. Oh my God. This is a round number right here. Oh my God. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll get into, uh, that may be a tribute to me. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to shift the, you know, last week we talked about shifting the focus of the show. It's just going to be just straight up our egos yeah, every yeah. week. Let's now. do it. Yeah. That's what we need. We're going to start asking our guests to just bring like roasts and then tributes <laughs> to us. <laughs> but before we get into the roasts and the tributes, a couple community announcements, uh, or actually I have a whole bunch of them today. So bear with me. Do your thing. But also definitely, you know, we say these every week. Like, find this, go pursue it. These are great ways to find your way into the people doing the work in the city. And before you do, shout out Post Loudness, shout out Wizard Radio. Oh, man. We have all kinds of affiliations right now. Yeah, we're going global, baby. And I'm excited to tell y'all in a few weeks about the live, or not live, but the original programming that we're going to be doing with Wizard Radio, bringing a little bit of what we do uh, overseas to the UK. So stay tuned for that. But first, this week, uh, tonight... At the hideout, uh, a family friend of mine, Eva Selena, who's a beautiful singer, she sings songs from all over the world, but especially the Balkans, um, is performing. She has like one of the most breathtaking voices. It's a free show at the hideout tonight at seven. I'll be there, um, and I recommend you be there too. Also tonight uh, at AMFM, uh, Ashley Triple, who hosts uh, P Power Radio, they're doing a live show tonight at AMFM. So definitely support that. Um, the Albany Park Defense Network is doing a film screening and a fundraiser to uh, pay for the legal fees for a couple uh, people fighting deportation uh, in their community. That's uh, tomorrow night, Friday night at 3253 West Wilson. Um, they're showing a film called Home Slash Land, um, which I saw the trailer for. It looked really cool. Uh, on Saturday, Ergo alum Iman Loren has her, her book release uh, the book's called Commando. It's a chat book, and the release is going to be at YCA on Saturday. On Sunday, Church on the Nine. Um, on Monday, we'll talk a little bit more about this rally with our guest today. So maybe I'll leave that one. And then on Wednesday, uh, at Hairpin Arts at Diversity and Milwaukee, there's a talk and a workshop around uh, how do we demystify zoning and the role it plays in gentrification. So like literally, how are the lines in our city set? Learning some of that process so that it doesn't just remain kind of this big amorphous thing we all hate. So that's what I got. And also, shout out to your favorite auntie. She she deserves some love. <laughs> do you have a do you have a favorite auntie? This I'm not going to make that call. Not not on air. This- <laughs> you're on the record <laughs> that's tough but let's get into it uh today we have a special guest one of my favorite people um has an amazing shirt here we're going to talk about that at length mm-hmm. and also has notes uh but now on, on a serious note uh part of the Sh- chicago community bond fund i realize i've never said your last name out loud so we're gonna try this right here with some <laughs> excitement and some gusto all right the one and only matt mclaughlin 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 all right all right so as we like to start first of all we're really happy to have you here Very thrilled to be here as we start uh, almost every episode on this day in this moment how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world all right uh <laughs> you're like man that's not on my note yeah, shit i don't have a note about that uh, can i say shit? <laughs> we got beef with the fcc all right so we'll see what happens okay uh, um the world is treating me good personally it's keeping me plenty busy um and I am trying to uh, give love back to the world, even with all the uh, stress and pressure in this current moment. But. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the the kind of macro stuff, but let's talk a little bit, you know, part of why we have you up here in this moment is around some of the like particularities of this moment for the bond fund. Um, so can you just give one like 
This is the like most radio-y interview part. Just give us like a little rundown of what the Bond Fund does and what's happening in this particular moment that people should know about if they only listen to the first seven minutes of the podcast. You should listen all the way through, folks. <laughs> all right. So the Chicago Community Bond Fund is a community organization that was started about two years ago by a group of activists, attorneys, and community members, some who had been in the jail and some who had family members in the jail. Um, and we are working to end pretrial detention and money bond in Cook County, um, specifically organizing from like an abolitionist perspective. Uh, the project is a mutual aid project. It has two arms. One is our advocacy arm, which is working to uh, pressure lawmakers and policy folks and judges to really follow the Constitution and not be setting bails that people can't pay. <laughs> And uh, the second part of the project is the uh, the mutual aid part, which is uh, focused on raising money uh, from people in the community to help pay bonds for people that can't afford them. Um, we've been able to bond out 92 people as of yesterday. Wow. Uh, by the end of the day today, we should be up to 94. Um, Damn. And we have also, uh, you know, the fund also supports activist movements in the city by posting bond for activists when they're arrested at street demonstrations. So everybody that uh, was arrested at a protest in Chicago last year and had a bond set, uh, we paid their bond within about 48 hours of them being arrested. Which is how I uh, became aware of the bond fund. But beyond like the ideological like position that was the origin of the bomb. What was like the narrative, right? Like what were the actual relationships, connections, sure. and the decision to like make this a real thing besides something that we want and is beautiful. So a lot of us who were working on the bond fund had been working to uh, help activists after they'd been arrested at protests in Chicago mm -hmm. um, for quite a while. Um, but the main, the catalyst that came up with the revolving fund idea was uh, in August of 2014, uh, about a week after Michael Brown was killed, uh, the Chicago Police Department killed a young man named Deshaun Pittman on the west side. Uh, his family held a vigil the week after. Uh, they had candles lined up on the street and uh, were gathering to lift up his life and memory. And the Chicago police, along with the officer who was involved in the shooting, came and disrupted the vigil, uh, began kicking down candles and har harassing family members. And by the time all was said and done, um, seven of Deshaun's family members were in jail, um, five of them being held on outrageous bonds. Um, and a lot of them were going to be missing Deshaun's funeral. So well, one of the folks that started the bond fund, Max, uh, got in touch with Deshaun's Shout family. Out to Max. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, started helping them raise funds. And through doing that and getting everybody out, um, the family really had this idea that, you know, nobody should ever have to go through this, let alone somebody in the circumstances that they were yeah. in. So they, you know, pushed and pushed. And uh, eventually in December of 2015, we had a meeting with them, uh, his, Deshaun's family and a bunch of other people from different community organizations and came together. And that was the start of the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Right. So let's let's kind of zoom into this week, this moment. Um, we're at a very exciting interesting somewhat confusing time for the work that you're that you're doing so can you give a little bit of a rundown of this kind of precarious and exciting position that we're in yeah so it's definitely an exciting moment in cook county right now the major things that are happening is there's a class action lawsuit that just had its uh first major day in court this week that's arguing that uh you know, bail is being applied unconstitutionally and that you know cook county for decades has been locking people up um punitively by setting bonds that they can't afford to post so they can't get out. And the lawsuit's arguing that uh, if bail is going to be set, it has to be set at a rate that people can pay so that they can actually get out and then continue to fight their cases, not be locked up pretrial. Um, so that court case uh, had, like I said, had its first major date and we're waiting to hear the outcome. Um, either the case will be allowed to move forward or it's going to be dismissed, in which case the legal team is, you know, planning on different ways at which they can attack the bail system in the courts. Mm -hmm. And then on Monday, uh, a new order by Chief Judge Evans is going into effect that says um, Judges in Cook County aren't supposed to be setting bails that people can't pay. If somebody's had bail set, they've actually already been cleared for release. So the only thing that's keeping a majority of the people in Cook County jail there is the fact that they're poor and they can't afford their bonds. I want to pause on that for one. You said the majority of people in Cook County jail, that's the case? Yeah. So there's about 7,000 people in the jail on any given day and about 70,000 people pass through Cook County jail every year. Cook County jail is actually the largest single site jail in the country. So it takes up about 11 blocks in Little Village that is nothing but incarceration. Um, 
And yeah, over 60% of the people in the jail are just there because they have a bond they can't afford to pay. Do you know any of the history of how and why Chicago has the largest jail in the country? Or or we, we gotta find we a different to, guest, or yeah, at least yeah. do a little. Research. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I just thought of that yeah, off the top. Yeah. You don't. You're not. You're not expected we to know that. We don't. But, yeah, we're not looking. To but that's just like on anything. That's just wild to to like no, claim. And that's, I don't think that's something we say out loud enough that it is the largest jail mm-hmm. in the country. And you feel it, to be honest. Yeah, like when, when you if, drive, if you're driving down California, you're coming across 26. Like, first of all, it's it's so stark in contrast to 26, the west of there, which is you know that main thoroughfare and little village is like bustling and full of life and full of people and small businesses and you know people selling things on the street. It's like a wonderful kind of like a little enclave. Yeah, and then you hit. Uh, like one block west of California and you just feel like the air, like it feels like the oxygen drops out. Mm. Like in that, that whole stretch, it just feels, it just, yeah, that's that same feeling that you feel when you, when you walk through the doors of a court hut, it's where you're like, Oh, this just feels wrong. Like this, there's no way that this is the way this is supposed to be, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, there was always an ominous fear as like a, where, where are you from? You from I'm from Philadelphia originally, sure. but I've been here for about 15 years true, now. True. We'll get the origin. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get to that. We're getting to the fanfare up top of like the hardcore <laughs> stats, but yeah, just growing up, I remember even being in like basketball camps and remembering like Michael Finley, like a, a ex NBA player saying like, do your homework and you end up in 26 in California. Right. Like that was like a constant fear for like young black people, young black boys in the city. Uh, so yeah, no transition to that, but just like, I, it's just a really horrible, horrible place. Um, so this, so this statement by the, um, by the chief judge goes kind of into effect. Like what's the deal with this? Right. So on Monday, uh, the bond fund, along with a bunch of other community groups, including like the people's lobby and Chicago Appleseed, um, and a bunch of other organizations have been watching the court for the past few weeks, mm-hmm. taking notes and seeing what's happening in every courtroom. And then we're going to continue doing that for at least the next few months, um, to really track what judges are actually following the order and which aren't, um, and do they have to? You know, the that is, uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. I mean, a lot of the judges obviously have been in power for, you know, 10 to 20 years, some of them more. And have no been, one tells this judge what to do. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so that's the attitude of a lot of them. And that's going to be on us and a lot of other community groups to really pressure the courts and let them know that we're watching. Yeah, and we're not going to stand for them continuing to set bond and locking people up just because yeah. they're poor. Yeah, let, let's, let's stay in, in like that that space a little bit uh because on paper like this is a win this is a w this is this is yeah this is a win although we're looking for like yeah it's definitely progress so it's Mm -hmm. like i mean the rule is kind of temporary so if chief judge evans retires or gets hit by a bus or whatever happens and somebody else becomes killed by an off-duty cop (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm running the script right now tune in next week Um, so uh the next episode of serial (laughs) and the so, yeah, if out. Chief Judge Evans leaves office, um, the next chief judge could just repeal the order and then that's it. Okay. And then they're back to setting bonds. So what we're really trying to do is make sure that one, judges are following this order now that it's here. But we also want to see either that lawsuit become victorious and then that will set precedent that they're not like allowed to do this, even if the chief judge changes the rule. Um, there've also been folks pushing for bills in Springfield to change the law statewide. Um, you know, although almost over half of the people that are locked up in jail are in jail in Cook County in Illinois. So most of Illinois jail population is here. Um, mm. but we're also a uh, Supreme court rule would also do the trick to, oh. to make a difference. And there's folks, you know, preparing to put pressure there. Yeah. So that kind of answered my, my like follow-up question, but I'll ask it anyway, in case there's, there's more room to go. Um, because, in my understanding, in my humble knowledge of like the history of like militaristic domination and white supremacy, which is what like the carceral system mm-hmm. is, uh, a lot of times like things that are in the moment like viewed as wins or progress in like when you the lens of history looks back at it actually were just a transformation mm-hmm. that actually expanded the program. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so like in that, like what is your your fear about this moment as not even outside of like the specific CCBF work in Cook County as like the national conversation around bail it, reform uh, it, it is, is seeming to be progressive or seeming to lean a little bit more towards justice. Uh, what, what is, do you have any fears about what this moment could be in terms of actually further establishing the domination? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the 
two things that people need to be watching out for are uh, one people trying to draw, draw this distinction between people who have been charged with quote unquote violent offenses and nonviolent offenses, obviously like politicians and um, some more um, centrist organizations are very much just focused on people with like nonviolent drug offenses. Our argument is that um, if you're being held pretrial, you're, you haven't been convicted of a crime and there is no reason for them to be holding people. So we're really pushing to make sure that people aren't drawing that distinction. Um, there's also people who would like to see people who are being charged with quote unquote violent crimes being detained pretrial without recourse for release, um, which right. We think is ridiculous and obviously we're pushing back on um, and the other major thing is the expansion of uh, programs like electronic monitoring that I, a lot of people I think have a misunderstanding of what it means to be on electronic monitoring mm -hmm. um, or to have conditions set by pretrial services so you know people that are coming out of the jail that um, are being forced to do drug testing even if they had where their arrest had nothing to do with mm -hmm. drugs um, people being given curfews. We've had, you know, young people, old people being hit with curfews where they can't leave their house between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. Um, and really trying to make sure that this is really pushing for people's release on their own recognizance and that we're not looking for new ways yeah. to keep tabs on that, people I while think they that's fight the case. That, that really scares, especially as it, it is like a more technological um advancement right is the electronic monitoring as someone who's had someone live in my house with electronic monitor mm -hmm. i don't think people really realize what that means mm -hmm. for like your entire family mm -hmm. because it, it turns your home into a jail um and what like, do you mean by that like you literally need permission to go get food right or to go to like work so if if you don't have a job or you're not in school then you have no permission to leave that means someone else has to get all the food that you have like if you go past really your house then I, I, as the person whose home was in, I am being called and being, and then also your house is always subject to search. And so mm -hmm. anything you have in your home is then something that, then they you don't could need be a warrant. They don't need a warrant to right, come in your house. Right. Um, and so that is what's really scary is like, then you could just turn the neighborhood into the jail mm -hmm. and then you can like reduce the costs and expenses of the brick and mortar. Right. Um, and claim that you're trying to decrease prison population, yeah. jail populations. Yeah, and I think most people see that and they think, oh, like you're at your house and you can get permission to work. And they don't really realize, um, you know, one, that they're not actually that quick to give people movement to work. If you have like a changing schedule, you're not going to be they're not going to cooperate with that. Or yeah. uh, we have somebody we might be posting bond for now that is uh you know, they work on call shifts. So right now there's no way for them to get back to their job. Yeah. Um, one of the people we posted bond for, who's now an organizer with the bond fund, Lavette, uh, always says that when she was put on electronic monitoring, they, they really, they incarcerated her children too. Cause mm -hmm. it became then like, you know, for someone to go outside and like, you know, practice learning how to ride a bike. If he got more than like 20 feet away from the house, she couldn't like run to save him if he went into the street or something. So it became like, oh, now you have to stay in the house too. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of stay in that direction um, because we kind of talked about the, the policy structure, judge decrees, all that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I've seen y'all working to do, and I know Let Us Breathe has been, you know, involved in some ways, um, is figuring out how, as we're fighting dehumanizing systems, how do we make the response and the, and the things that we're trying to build um, not continue that dehumanization, even if it's fighting the policy. So just even beyond the organization, just personally, like how have you um, worked to try to connect with or or just like fully see the people that y'all are bonding out. What do those relationships look like or, or how are you approaching those? Um, so we support everybody that we've posted bond for and stick with them through their case. And then even after their cases have wrapped up, I mean, we really recognize that the harm that people experience while in the jail doesn't stop once they've left the jail, right? Because mm -hmm. your your whole life has been disrupted. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, the longer you're in there, the more you're trying to recover from. And then even when your case resolves, you're still, you know, in recovery mode. People have lost jobs, housing, all kinds of things. So not to mention mental health. Yeah. And people being, you know, ripped from resources. If somebody's in jail for 30 days, well, there's your your food stamps are now gone. And most other like government services like Medicaid, you now have to re-enroll. Uh, you know, people get arrested with their, all their all their IDs and the police don't give them back. Good luck trying to register for a government program if you can't prove who you are, let alone prove who you are to get an ID. Um, so 
we have a team of about 30 people that uh, work with everybody that we've bonded out to try to support them while they fight their cases. And a lot of those relationships have gone beyond that support, um, where a lot of these people have become part of our families. And, you know, a lot of them have said we've become a part of theirs. So it's a really, a, yeah. yeah, pretty beautiful thing. How about for you? We're going to, we're going to get like individual because that's part <laughs> of what we do. Here. Like, what has that been? What has that process been like for you? Are there really, you don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be the specifics of the people or anything, but. I imagine you have to be an entire new person, right, from going through those experiences. And you've you've had you've done some transformative experiences before. <laughs> this is not your first time. This is not your first transformative rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> like where where for you are you finding transformation in this work the same way maybe or new ways than you had before? I mean, you know, obviously being a white guy, I have not had to ha live with the same fears of the police or incarceration um, or have had as many people like in my community growing up that were like experiencing these things. So obviously for me, that has been like a new thing to be surrounded by so many people that are going through that. Um, and being able to, like I said, watch people who have really had like severe harm to them done outside of having your life taken, having your liberty taken is probably the most severe thing you can do to a human being is, is uh, yeah, remove, you know, their any freedom that they have and uh, watching people not just come out of the jail and take back their life. Uh, but then also the you know, this seeing these people with this fire to really fight back and like get the word out about what happened to them. Um, we just had a. Uh, one of the people we posted bond for last year, Devereaux, whose case uh, wrapped up a few months ago, spoke out uh, before the lawsuit at a press conference the other day and was like, you know, it was like amazing to see him get this opportunity where he was like really speaking out and like articulating what people uh, go through. And, you know, there's no amount of well-intentioned people that can really speak to these experiences that like the people who have gone through them i don't know i think we get like 67 well-intentioned white people yeah and i think i think what's you know as like prison abolition has become a central part of my life and like a a, a recurring theme in the show uh i think something that's really interesting about the the bond fund work and bond in general and that you that you mentioned is that this is pre-conviction right so mm -hmm. this is technically not prison yet right. right so so like do we need to be having beyond like abolish bail like do we need to be pushing the language of like prison and jail abolition yeah right? absolutely like, like, i mean as a specific distinction yeah i mean that's why we make sure that anytime we're saying abolish money bail that we're also saying end pretrial detention because it's not just about getting rid of bond or bail it's about getting rid of this idea that you can incarcerate somebody pretrial that hasn't been convicted of a crime mm -hmm. we think it's ridiculous and obviously the fact that they're asking for money is absolutely disgusting um and i think it, looking at this from like an abolitionist perspective um we really believe that like jails are kind of the foundation to the prison industrial complex and mm -hmm. if, if around the country we can really reduce the number of people being incarcerated pre-trial we're making a major strike against the prison system in yeah. general and i think it's it's a it's like for those who may not be radicalized or politicized, like I think it's a very easy, logical, psychological and like emotional step. Cause like, as you know, the work of having conversations of like, we should not have prisons, like very well-intended, great people, right? Like nice, kind-hearted people are like, no, people who are violent mm -hmm. should be like, like, like them below the specifically jail. like the murder, the rapist, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that, that concept of that being an identity for somebody mm -hmm. that is where they belong. But the, the pre-conviction, uh, concept I think is a step that can get people um, educated mm. on the entire system mm -hmm. and I think folks are, are like ready to stand up uh, for that so before we I think it's time to like start digging more into you a little bit is there you have a notepad are there any like notes statistics like jarring things that we have not asked or that or need things to people should be showing up for or something I mean like so just in regards to like views on bail in general I think there's like very much a focus on the class aspect of like money. Um, I think it's really important that people recognize how much of a like ending cash bail is a racial justice issue. I mean, black people are statistically incarcerated pretrial five times the rate of white people. Uh, bonds are statistically set higher. Um, even in just like Cook County Jail, uh, 
of the women in the jail, 87% of them are women of color. So it's, you know, definitely disproportionately affecting communities of color. And if we're like serious in this moment uh, about addressing racial justice issues, uh, ending cash bail and pretrial detention needs to be at the forefront of that. Um, in regards to what's happening right now on Monday, uh, like we were talking about earlier, the chief judge's order goes into effect. So the bond fund, along with a bunch of other community groups, will be out in front of Cook County Jail at 26 in California at noon uh, to rally and make sure that the press and the judges and uh, really the city knows that we are behind this move to stop setting bonds for people and releasing people pre-trial. Word. Michael Finley's like, you didn't do your homework. <laughs> Shout out Michael Finley, though. Like, for real, if we if we have one time, I have, like, mad love for Michael Finley. He, he was like, I don't know if you, you know who Michael Finley is. He played for the Dallas Mavericks. He's from Maywood. And so, like, actually, like, the, the, the population, it, it, the the camp every year would be at Proviso East, which is not too far from Cook County. So, like, it was he was doing some real good work. I'll make a uh, note to look him yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get him at the press. Yeah, those, those mid-2000s, like, Michael Finley was the man. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I want to contextualize where we go now, and like you know, you, you said you you're from Philadelphia. I, as I see you, right, like you are one of the most like consistent politically active folks, not just in the city, but like you're kind of tied into like the national discourse, definitely via your your social media presence, right? And you are at agitator in chief, right? For folks who don't know, maybe maybe not. Oh, ooh, <laughs> well, we're not supposed to it's not supposed to give that to it's the people. It's a, incognito. My bad. Okay. Uh, That's why I couldn't find you on Twitter. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I want to get into like I st- I've seen you like post kind of uh, like little cute anecdotes on Facebook about like your parents and like kind of like in high school or college starting to like get radicalized. Uh-huh. What, what were some of those first steps of, you know, Philadelphia, Matt, getting into this understanding of the world that made you so active? I mean, I think the thing that really woke me up at a young age, I grew up in Philadelphia and born and raised. What like part of the, the city or uh, the Northeast Philadelphia? Okay. And um, what's that like? Oh, it was a working class neighborhood, uh, pretty diverse. Um, although in school, I'd say, you know, first through fifth grade, every teacher I had was a black woman. And then, uh, after that, I had moved to the suburbs in high school, um, which was the first time I was really exposed to racist white folks. Um, and having grown up, you know, like in classrooms where, like I said, it was fairly diverse. Um, and yeah, hearing, you know, racism from white people really, really messed me up as a kid, um, I guess was the the thing that like first got me uh, leaning in that area. And then obviously growing up, uh, after nine 11 being in high school and watching, uh, the U S march off to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it was hard not to really get politically active in that moment. How old are you now? I am 31. Sorry to put you on blast, but, um, so that means, so 2001, I, I'm not going to be able to do the math. So you, I was, you were in high school. I was in fourth grade. Yeah. You were a freshman in high school. Right. Man, I can't even imagine like, like being yeah. 14 in that moment and all of a sudden like it was one thing to have my world change at nine but also your world kind of always changes at nine <laughs> but to have your world change at 14 like that um what for you you know and it's also you know kind of around the anniversary what what was it in that moment was it specifically us then invading um or the u.s invading or was it something about like what happened that day that kind of shook things up for you Uh, I think it was mostly the response after the fact of seeing like all this uh, pain and so many people go through stuff. Like we had people in my community that lost their parents um, when the buildings went down and seeing the way that that sadness and that, uh, you know, was turned into anger and hatred, especially obviously against uh, Muslim folks and people in the Middle East, like really uh, disturbed me. Um, And Mm. that was the, yeah, yeah, the thing that first led me to take action actually Mm. in high school. So when you say take action, what does that mean? Well, when I was Were you uh, out here at these, the, the big anti-war marches and well, stuff Well, like I was that? out here for that stuff uh, once I got to college. Um, but in high school, I uh, the morning we started bombing uh, Iraq, I grabbed a roll of duct tape from my parents' garage and taped the words no war on the back of my jacket, which led to me getting picked on and uh, even harassed by teachers, which eventually escalated to me being told I was going to be suspended from school if I didn't stop wearing the jacket, which was the first time where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, it's actually controversial to say, like, don't harm other people. <laughs> That's when you took off the jacket and your shirt under also had no <laughs> How did they, like, I won't, 
that story like on the surface is kind of amazing but how did they like articulate that as a teacher or a principal like what was the principal's argument on? was that uh i was disrupting classes because they said that it was upsetting to other students you know many of these were the same students that i was hearing you know say all kinds of racist stuff on our bus rides yeah. every day so what would if you were to describe i love asking this question what if you were to describe like 15 16 year old matt before we we usually ask like what would you tell him but before we even get to that like <laughs> What is fifteen-year-old Matt like? What, what are like? What's he doing after school? What's he listening to? Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> what kind of what kind Matt? of hair are we looking at? Oh, we got? What's the style? Fifteen-year-old Matt had hair down to his shoulders uh-huh. and was. Uh, I was gonna guess that. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to Grateful Dead concerts and that sort of thing, and uh, yeah, it was definitely a bit of a class clown and uh, not really knowing what to do with all that energy. And obviously, I finally found something to do with it that wasn't just making jokes. <laughs> So how'd you end up? Uh, we're going to jump ahead a little yeah, bit. How'd you yeah. end up out here? Uh, I came out here to go to Columbia College to study film. As so many, yeah, so, so many, many did. Yeah. How and did then, that go? Oh, it was terrible. You know, <laughs> like for most people, I think, right? Yeah, they get a big anti shot out a, pretty you often. You get a big, big uh, debt you get to get sent out of there with. But uh, did you graduate? I did graduate. Ah, I bounced first. around. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I think we had someone else. I think someone you're like the second or third. Well, but the like, bizarre thing was that I wound up with a business degree, which does not like really. A business degree from Columbia? Yeah, which does not really like describe me, I guess, in any way. But, <laughs> but film it's, was, it's a was like what took you out there? Store for milk, like. <laughs> yeah, film brought me out here. Um, and then I finished college. I was in a relationship and I was like, I'll stick around. And then uh, I guess about a year after that, uh, Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Chicago happened. And uh, at the time, I was like totally ready to leave Chicago. Um, but it was the experience at Occupy that really made me feel like Chicago was my home and that I was a part of a community here and that I've decided, yeah, that I wanted to stay here and continue fighting. I think that like, stay. yeah, yeah. Cause I, I don't think like the Occupy moment has been brought into conversation on the show yet. And I think just in general, like, yeah, I think it, it does get downplayed. Once this, moves from, when, yeah, once this moves from memory to history, like our time, I think that's going to be like part of the history very centrally of this, the last 10 years. Um, but in memory, Right now, we kind of don't talk about it that much. Yeah. Um, so, to, so to take the burden off, and we kind of had a funny moment a while, a while back. We're going to get to to Freedom Square, obviously. Uh, but like to take the burden off, like there were obviously contradictions within Occupy around the country, mm-hmm. specifically around like the lens of of white supremacy mm-hmm. and racism. But that aside, right? Like, tell us about that experience and why that was so significant for you and and your like participation and and role. In yeah. It. What felt like home? Um, the, the exciting thing to me about the whole Occupy experiment was the way in which I think a lot of top-down organizing makes it very difficult for people to take on roles in the movement or to get involved outside of like showing up at a march and carrying a sign and there's only so Making many phone time. calls. Or yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> phone banking. It's like, the, or if canvassing, it's like only so many times folks can do that before they get burnout or disgruntled or feeling like they're not making an impact. And unless, you know, you necessarily have the right connections or experiences, it's very hard to like get into a role where you're actually organizing and developing your own projects and occupy kind of leveled the playing field and was very, very much this like horizontal organizing experience where anybody could show up at that corner or at uh, that park, wherever it was in your city. And there was an opportunity to actually get involved and really have your voice heard in a way that typically isn't possible in organizing. What was it? I'm just curious, Dane, what was your reaction or experience? You know, cause this is pre actually really either of our engagement and like, what were you seeing? What did you see when that was going on here and around the country? I get, I get, so Occupy started in 2012. Give me a 2011. year. 2011. So yeah, we were in school. Um, so by then, right, like I grew up in the like, you know, financial literacy can save the black community mm-hmm. type type ideology and learned a lot about the stock market about and actually like was speaking and teaching about it. Uh, but had like a few teachers had saw my like politics in high school and were like, naming is like, are you wrestling with that? And I didn't even see my economic outview and like my social political outview mm-hmm. as like in relation to each other. So obviously after, you know, having at, in, at a young age, probably like more than most teenagers, a really crisp understanding of the economic crash and, and what was happening. Uh, I was for it. I, you know, I was like, hell yeah. You know, there's also like, uh, was mirroring or extending a lot of the Obama like language or, or hope or change mm-hmm. kind of like concepts. So 
it was dope to me. I didn't, I didn't like know the specifics or really understand the day to day. It wasn't in mainstream media. And this was really before like Twitter was the political space mm-hmm. that it, that it became. So yeah, to me, it was, it was pretty cool, but we were also like in Iowa. So like we yeah. didn't get to like see it, you know, in, 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 in the physical form. It's interesting. I remember coming here on, I think it was maybe the second time that I ever came to Chicago and, uh, going to one of the marches then and you know i'd like similarly to you like in when i was a kid my parents had taken me to you know the big climate march or the big anti-war mm-hmm. march or stuff like that um but this was like maybe the first time making that choice to show up as a like quote unquote adult um yeah and it was like very surreal for me like i remember i remember that moment being there and it was here in chicago so it wasn't a central encampment we could talk about that in a little bit but I just remember that feeling that I had of just, you know, how like collective energy comes together in the middle of a protest and like everything's just kind of floating a little bit. I remember like feeling that feeling and then wanting to chase that, have that feeling again. And then going back to my cousin's house where I was staying and like watching, this was the first time, like you mentioned, it was early in the days of like social media being used as the monitor, the tool to keep track of that. So I remember literally watching like someone's live stream on like a stream of the cops coming in and, you know, pulling people out and arresting them, you know, 20 minutes after I'd been there and I'm lying in bed. Yeah. That was, I don't know. I'm just, I haven't even really thought about this until we just started talking about it. Like how pivotal that was uh, for me. What were, what were, I'll stop talking about me. What were like the eye opening, like specific moments for you or like what has stuck with you? Cause you out there like the- extended like days on end. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a solid, uh, I guess from September of 2011 through uh, the NATO summit, I guess was probably like the, the real end. We did some organizing around the uh, election and the presidential election in 2012. But I'd say like the NATO summit was kind of the peak of the Occupy movement here in Chicago. Um, to me, the, the, it was the community building aspect that, you know, like I said, there were tons of people who had never dreamed of of doing a lot of the things that they were out there doing, whether that was speaking to thousands of people or it was creating social media content that was going all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously there were a lot of mutual aid projects within Occupy, like, uh, you know, uh, food distribution, um, resource distribution and that sort of stuff where yeah, people found out that they had things inside of them that I don't think they knew were there. What did you find that you didn't know was there? <laughs> I mean, I for guess better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to really put my finger on it. I guess I've never really tried to define it, but I guess it, you know, I never really thought like organizing projects was a thing that I would be involved in or social media. I mean, I was, I was a Luddite, like I was not on Facebook. I was not on Twitter. And, uh, you know, that's become like a large part of my toolbox now is Mm -hmm. like knowing how to use social media to amplify people's causes. And, uh, that was definitely a major development for me. And yeah. And you you were saying that, so kind of before it jumped off, you were in many ways ready to leave the city. Um, Mm -hmm. or at least ready for a new chapter. And obviously now, you know, almost a decade later, or half a decade later, you have some roots in a different way here. Um, And I remember us talking at some point, I think it was during Freedom Square, something around there about, you know, we can get as specific or vague as you want to stay, but kind of the the roller coaster of being engaged (laughs) um, and the things that you uh, either trade or give up or just the, the, the unexpected ways that it's, that it's impacted um, your life. And then you have to kind of come out the other and put together your life mm-hmm. again after being fully engaged like that. Um, as much as you want to talk about, can you speak a little bit to that process of like what being out there every day and occupy, like what did you give up? Um, and then what was the process of kind of figuring out once everything got packed up, uh, what to do next or how to like be a person in the world who's not out on the street like that every day. Occupy destroyed every part of my life. It was <laughs> not related to Occupy. <laughs> Occupy occupied my life. And I'm grateful for it in retrospect. And uh, it's an unhealthy tendency I've noticed in my own work is that I'm a bit of a workaholic and I can't put things down. And it's hard to put things down when you live in Chicago. I mean, we're like... In a lot of ways, I feel like we're, yeah, we're the epicenter of problems in the United States. I mean, we've got like the worst neoliberal mayor in the country. We've got this like 
billionaire governor and now we got Trump as president. It's like it really is the epicenter of a lot of these problems. And one of the beautiful things about Occupy was the way that here particularly was the way that uh, people use that energy that we had built up to throw down for other causes. And like, I think one of the moments that all of us that were involved was most proud of was working with uh, Stop on the campaign to try to save the mental health clinics yeah, yeah. uh working with the chicago teachers union um when they they went on strike and uh you know the uh roms moved to close 50 schools uh in yeah. one one go but, but what, what do you mean by it and i'm i'm staying on you i'm gonna like bring you up but again if there's any piece of this you don't want to go yeah sure know, but I'm, I'm gonna so like pushing. i mean well, in terms of like personally i mean yeah, I l pretty much lost all the friendships that I had prior to Occupy because people that were that didn't get it, didn't get it and didn't get what I was doing with my time. That also included like a five year relationship that uh, disappeared. And actually, while we were at Freedom Square um, and people were talking about that came up quite a bit with a few different people talking about how important it is to, you know, to hold on to the things that you've got and not let you know organizing completely mm. overrun your life, you know, and that you yeah. got to hold on to these other things because they're part of what make you you. Um how are you thinking about that these days in the work that you do? Like, cause this is what I mean by like, you say it destroyed, but then you, at least from the outside, you've like recreated, created and crafted like a beautiful Some humanity. existence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, it's all now? for the better now. It's, it was definitely, I mean, I don't want to like the, yeah. the Phoenix is definitely like a, yeah. a, a bit of a big metaphor, but like, <laughs> uh, but that's how it feels a lot, in a lot of ways is that, you know, you I are wearing a feather coat. Right now, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think like in Chicago, we're really lucky. We have a really beautiful, diverse community here um, in, in, in regards to activism. Um, and uh, yeah, it really does feel like I have a family here. Five years later, my family supports my work in a way that they didn't, you know? It's like, oh, and then another thing that happened. We just want you to Occupy. curse less. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely probably the biggest complaint at this point. It's like they get the police like, thing, but like they don't get the. Can't you, can you just say freak the police? Freak them. Freak them. Uh, frying pan. Uh, <laughs> that's just a quick side note. That's my favorite thing about watching movies on planes is when they overdub curse. Oh, yeah. You know, you 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 uh you rubber ducking <laughs> there are too many rubber ducking snakes on this rubber ducking plane. <laughs> but yeah, I mean we we can like kind of get into it now because um I think a big part of like our model here on the show is using the individual or not using that's a bad word, but centering the individual to discuss the structural and then going back and forth mm -hmm. kind of an in and out relationship. Uh, and I think you are a really good example. And it probably wasn't until after the Freedom Square experience that I realized that the, the, the continuum or the relationship uh, between the Occupy and like the residue or the, the, the you know, the fractions mm -hmm. that came out of that into the, the movement for Black Lives mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter. And I think the... Um, as 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 uninformed as I am about Occupy and hearing about the contradictions, uh, I just want to like commend you. And I, I I try to be careful of like because you're my buddy too. Like of like not like patting the good white folks on the back too much. You know what I'm saying? Because I know that that could be kind of problematic. But like beyond, we're gonna walk out of the studio. It's gonna be a line of Chicago <laughs> students waiting on the curb. Excuse me. <laughs> but beyond beyond your whiteness, like both of your your humanity, right? Like really have shown through. And you're just you're, you're a person that like. Over the last year, I've really grown to appreciate every time I see you, I give you a really big hug. Um, and that started uh, from Freedom Square. Uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about it because you were really there in a consistent, constant way. And actually on the show, it definitely comes up, but I kind of uh, shy away or, or it, is, it is painful for me mm -hmm. to talk about it from a place of, of how much I loved the work and the people there um, and wanted to like sustain past what, you know, our capacity. Um, it's difficult to talk to people who were not there every day, mm -hmm. right? Who have opinions, um, <laughs> you know, or, 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 yeah, or, or get fragments um, because it, it is like, like any one instance of a 24 hour day is like so, so minuscule in the overall. So I'm really excited to talk to somebody who's like fully immersed and has an understanding and like knows the secrets, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And also like didn't know us before. Right. 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 So right. That's, that's, that's the moment I want to get to. Cause yeah. this is actually really, really funny. <laughs> <laughs> the first day he showed up. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure like in like the protest scene, I had seen Matt's face, but we had never like spoke. And I think, you know, you, you might've been aware of me and like, mm -hmm. you look familiar, uh, but you showed up and like your beer was at like 
a height, <laughs> right? Like it was <laughs> at an apex. I'm sure your, your beard trajectory. Um, you, would, you would hit peak beard, <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I was because before <laughs> I knew you, I walked yeah. up. I was like, "Yo, Matt, what's up?" Right? Because. I thought that you were a different, largely bearded white <laughs> Matt. And it took me to like later that day, like the next day, I like, I like owned up to it and apologized. I actually thought there's this guy who's like a part of like the scene. He was kind of like treated crew adjacent. His name was, uh, I forget his last name, but his name is Matthew. He Shout went, Matthew. he went by contraband. Oh, Matt, Matthew Hyman. Yeah. 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 He went by contraband. He, he was like, he was a, minute. yeah, it was a oh. chance man- manager for like the, the pre 10 day, early 10 day era. Pre, pre packed. 2012, he and I texted about me interviewing Chance. It did not happen. I went back to Iowa and then Chance tweeted, uh, <laughs> people don't want to say hello. They just want interviews and press. And I was like, well, all right, I'm going to get back on the road. He actually designed my boom logo. For- really? Yeah, yeah. So, you're not so but the not funny story, right? Like I walked up yeah. to you and like thought you were a different. I was like, yo, what's up? And you were like happy. Like, oh, hey, you're like, <laughs> I'm glad that you're like happy that I'm here. Right? Because like this dude, I, I had no expectation of him like being so in the dirt uh-huh. with us. So that was just like a really funny moment that I think back on as you like then start to show up every day and mm-hmm. like had a tent. Um, but let's start at that first day because yeah. you were literally there from jump and you were, you know. Let, let me add some context though of why why it's we're a continuum. Let you talk no, 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 no. Because, <laughs> you know, the you know Freedom Square as in opposition to Homan Square, mm-hmm. the Homan Square story broke in The Guardian as mm-hmm. a result of the NATO protests, mm-hmm. right? And so not only the political like act of occupation right but the the actual space and the actual target mm-hmm. had relationship to the occupy yeah moment. absolutely so i'm yeah, so that is then the context of yeah. you know you riding up on your bike mm-hmm. the first day tell us about how'd you find out experience. how'd you why'd you show up <laughs> well i first found out that this was going on i was actually in cleveland protesting the uh, republican national convention which was the week before when the initial protest happened outside Homeland square oh, the uh, byp shut down yeah, yeah. and you know, i just re- had better food <laughs> 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 but uh, I remember being out there in Cleveland, and that was like a really scary, depressing time. Um, you know, oh, yeah, at the beginning like Trump. of Trump's campaign, yeah. it was like he was getting shut down everywhere, yeah. Chicago, you know, yeah. throwing down uh, outside UIC. And it felt like when we were rolling into Cleveland, like, all right, like there's this like movement that is ready to like stand up to his racism and uh these white supremacists that are coming out of the woodwork and then we got to cleveland how did that go (laughs) yeah that was uh cleveland was a scary place there was uh i've never seen that many like uh white supremacists and bigots walking around like openly like uh, some of them armed um armed people walking in the middle of uh protest crowds and it felt like like as a movement it felt like oh no like we're like we're in deep dog doo-doo right now yeah there's something scarier about that than like opposing the police Mm -hmm. oddly right even though they're stronger and more organized Mm -hmm. but like when i first start seeing citizens come out like "Uh uh-oh this Mm -hmm. is this is more expensive this is different and um yeah i was riding back uh to chicago and i saw the call went out and i was like all right well i know what i'm doing tomorrow (laughs) and like i i still like to this day i don't know if i would have gotten through last summer had freedom square not happened because i was like so distraught and unsure of like what as a movement we needed to do to respond to this and uh yeah freedom square really uh filled me with hope and like the personal connection that you're bringing up like uh during the nato summit uh occupy chicago was infiltrated by uh three undercover agents with the chicago police um who uh came to teach-ins and community gatherings and workshops and built friendships up with uh, some of the people and then ultimately you found out who they were yeah we found out who they were i actually uh you know gave several teachers that they participated in um and did they do the thing new york undercovers do where they wear uh like a yankee jersey over their button down no (laughs) no they were they were wearing all black they were trying to pretend they were anarchists or something like that Mm. um but um yeah had extensive interactions with them one of them even got arrested trying to defend the mental health trying quote unquote to defend the mental health clinic you know trying to get build up street cred um and ultimately they entrapped five people that they set up with terrorism charges um and when they were arrested during the NATO summit, they were all taken to Holman Square. And when lawyers with the National Lawyers Guild were trying to figure out where the people were taken and nobody could find them at any police precinct, that's when like folks got tipped off that they were being held somewhere else. And that's when uh, those that we found out first about Holman Square. Um, 
And then the thing that got really odd was about a year later, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, in New York who said, you should really connect with our friend Angel, who uh, we were in school with. Uh, he just had like a really bad experience with the police. Mm -hmm. And I think you you might like be able to connect him with folks that might be able to like help him get through this. And uh, when I connected with him, I ended up finding out that uh, he was also taken to Holman Square. Um, and one of the Guardian articles uh, focuses on his experience of being uh, sodomized by the Chicago police at Holman Square. So, um, yeah, when I found out that the there were people uh, calling for the facility to be shut down and that the idea was that we were going to build this community space that was like everything, the antithesis of everything that that building represents. I was like, well, that's that's obviously where I want to be right now. Mm. It's interesting because I remember that first, you know, one of those first nights when we we're still kind of and I, I don't know if this ever really got resolved, but figuring out like, how do we get a sense of someone when they walk in, knowing that there are histories and experiences of that kind of infiltration and like the, just being very attentive yeah. to that. And I didn't know who the hell you were. Right. Mm -hmm. So I of course had my own little like distrust. That's actually a really funny thing is that like, white folks in the black space are very like suspicious of the uh -huh. other white people uh -huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> shout out frank berg he would be like <laughs> he would be on it <laughs> well we at some level it feels like a responsibility yeah, yeah. um but I, I am curious about that like how did you beyond the like tactical making relationships and you know but like how did you think about um connecting with people because for me i just think if i had walked up there having never known any Let Us Breathe folks or other organizers, like, I don't know how I would have seen that space or approached that space or felt like I could enter it or connect with people. How did you think about that without really having these relationships beforehand? Um, well, one of the things Damon brought up earlier was um, the issues with uh, Occupy and like racial justice, which was like definitely one of Occupy's weaker points that that was not more of a focus. Um, and I think you know, through that experience and then coming out of Occupy and then, you know, within two years, you know, the really the start of the Black Lives Matter movement um, really forced a lot of us who were involved to really reflect upon our relations to movements, especially, you know, issues affecting people of color. And, uh, you know, that's really the first time I ever thought about being like an accomplice and not an ally, uh, like really like throwing down behind people and uh, taking the lead. And like I said, through my experiences at Occupy, I just felt like um, if people were into it, I had a responsibility to be there and try you to help prepared. out. You, you yeah. got to build some tents. <laughs> Man, I remember you can't, you unrolled a sleeping pad like, before we, like no one else had figured out a sleep. And we you were like rocks. pulled off the backpack, unrolled the sleeping pad, had the pillow, had a canteen, like the whole thing, like locked down. It's like, wow, either this is like the best infiltrator of all time or this dude like really, really knows his stuff. Yeah. And like, it, it's just interesting. Like the, you know, I remember you and Brendan, like, really holding down because we were doing so much food and like more food than we expected yeah. that like then like sanitation became an issue mm -hmm. and like designing like a dishwashing system outside where we have no running water mm -hmm. and, and, and things of that nature um again like I, to be honest like because it was such a central part of my life and i was also so centered and it, it's hard to like ask questions mm -hmm. uh, and, and like reflect but just what are some of the memories or some of the like lessons to take away because it's hard for me to really uh get specific because it's so vast for me uh but yeah i just want to just he hear you talk more uh, uh, about that experience because i think um into that idea of uh accompliceness i don't know how to uh, conjugate that word but like accomplish a a being an accomplice mm -hmm. you know like just the, the floor is yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think, like I said, Freedom Square was really a continuation for me of this idea that when we create these horizontal spaces that people, people transform. Um, mm. And I think we watched that happen to a lot of people um, over the course of their time at Freedom Square. And like even like that, just that issue you mentioned with the kitchen, I don't think like if you had told Caleb at the beginning of the summer, like <laughs> you're going to feed like over a thousand people and you're going to keep like a kitchen going where they're serving meat without a refrigerator and you're not going to get anybody sick. Yeah. Like he would have been like, you're crazy, <laughs> you know, but like we found a way to do it. And uh, that, you know, yeah, when people like uh care and already in that moment that people can do things that they never really dream possible and like watching even people in the community then like come down 
set up their tents and then be like, you know, like, I don't want to leave here. Like, this is our space. And like really feeling comfortable, like speaking out um, in a way that I don't know if some of them had prior. Um, yeah. So for you, as we as we head toward the end here, you know, we have we, we've kind of created these like twin pillars or the this continuum, I guess, would be more honest between being out in the street as part of Occupy and then being out at Freedom Square. I'm assuming that you're living under a roof. <laughs> um, and and I know <laughs> that the bond phone work is, you know, thematically and, you know, politically in the same spirit, but it's a whole other set of skills um, and a whole other kind of stuff to be doing day to day. What's, what have you found that's like newly fun about like dealing with lawyers and courtrooms and stuff? And like, what do you miss about being like, unrolling the sleeping pad and, and washing out the kitchen. Well, if you supplies. find people are camping out, I guess the people out in front of uh, the Obama library today, Stop Chicago True. is out there. Oh, um, really? Yeah, they slept out all night. I uh, fortunately didn't make it down. But um, I was also just reading about this amazing tent city in Baltimore that came down like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a group of folks experiencing homelessness who set up a tent city right in front of City Hall. And the outcome or the first outcome is that they were granted a... Um, former school that's used as a shelter in the winter to be used as a continual um like housing space so they're still figuring out and they had a whole like list of demands um but it's just interesting to see this tactic used on it over and over again anyway mm -hmm. yeah i mean the bond fund i mean in a lot of ways is really connected to all that other other work i mean like I said, being a, a privileged white guy, I never really had to deal with uh, the prison industrial complex too much growing up. And it wasn't until I started organizing protests and, you know, people began getting arrested that this idea of like, all right, like this, we got to get these people out and we've got to support these people. And then realizing the struggles that people go through to come up with bail money um, really informed my outlook on like, I guess, yeah, how destabilizing you know trying to support somebody that's locked up is and like for movement specifically it's like yeah. the police arrest people they set these bonds all of a sudden you're working on this campaign that's like getting yeah. somewhere now all of a sudden you're devoting all your energy to getting your homies out and yeah. it's uh yeah i mean being able to support movements is a really centered part of the bond fund i mean we really believe that the moment we're in where bail reform is possible nationally now would not be happening without the black lives matter movement like there is no question that the people on the streets in ferguson and baltimore and charlotte and all these cities that have rose up really have forced people to reanalyze our relationship to policing and to prisons and without that uh the, the reform that we're seeing right now and hopefully is coming to cook county you know next week it wouldn't be possible without that yeah. but my question is do you hate spreadsheets and legal pads <laughs> oh, would you rather be camping out legal i would always rather be camping out uh, yeah that was what i said but, yeah. but I, I do want to like end with like commending the work again um because you know on on a tangible like direct impact level um, it's really hard to compare what the bond fund has been able to accomplish in the last couple of years and then the work of of bond funds throughout the country. But I think Chicago has uh, established a model that has been really sustainable. So definitely shout out uh, to you, Charlene, Max, Holly and, and, and Jeff. All, yeah. Jeff Mac. Jeff Max. They're actually the same person. The same person. <laughs> <laughs> it's a double shout out. Double shout out. <laughs> Cause I, I think, you know, as privilege works again along many spectrums, even you know, outside of just race, um, I think you're really right that like the political uprising and protest movement of folks, you know, either being willing or sometimes like actively getting arrested on purpose mm -hmm. and then seeing like, you know, we, we were gonna get out in a few hours, mm -hmm. we're gonna get pizza, uh, and then, you know, having to like wrestle with this is people's day-to-day -day experience and there was a a lacking of consent mm -hmm. that right like we, we you know sometimes and for political effectiveness there's almost a consent to getting arrested mm -hmm. uh for well, it's even like word. the civil rights movement yeah. where king and people were arguing all right like we're gonna get locked up and we want jail and no bail like we're gonna clog their jails up yeah. obviously it's a little bit different now with as many people as we like, have well we're gonna build a bigger jail <laughs> right yeah and that's yeah, what's happening that's now. You gotta, like, yeah. that's how we wound up with 11 jail that stretches 11 city blocks yeah but but i think that you know that realization of you know us because i think being an organizer in any lane is a privilege right mm -hmm. it comes from a point of Absolutely. privilege, regardless of of even you know whatever backstory you have uh and so the and the analysis of that privilege to going deeper into the structure i think is just a really important time and i'm glad that we've captured a lot of it in this conversation but most importantly with 30 seconds left uh oh 
Very important thing that we do every week. If you had to start beef with an R&B singer of any era, who's it going to be? <laughs> beef? Why am I starting beef? <laughs> because this Accountability week, is important. I don't want to like throw down with like Isaac Hayes or something. I don't <laughs> well, want to start no well, beef. Well, so don't start it with Isaac Hayes. <laughs> but it, the, the, the premise is, as Damon always says, that R&B has run amok and there's no accountability. <laughs> so this is an important moment. Uh, I do appreciate your anti-beef, though. Yeah, anti-beef yeah, to yeah, Isaac. Yeah, like, no, Isaac yeah, Hayes dude. is great. Watch Watt Stacks. That's an amazing thing. We can, yeah. we can start doing that. We can start adding balance. We can start adding beef yeah. and anti-beef. Let's beef and love. Here. Yeah. Beef and love for Isaac Hayes. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're, you're just too... I got the love for that. Soul, man. It's, it's just no, no, nobody needs to need some accountability. Oh man, I'm not the. I don't. Yeah, right. no, I'm, I'm not about I'm the whole I'm gonna, I'm gonna start being ready for when folks for, for, for when folks are prepared. I'm gonna do an, uh, a a beef with the fourth member of Drew Hill who left the group, <laughs> and then an ultimate anti beef super shout out to my man Cisco, Cisco, my boy. For folks who don't know me and Cisco, chopped it up real heavy. Oh if anybody needs a Cisco plug, I'll hit him on the jack. That is my man. You actually have his digits. No, but I probably could get in touch with his manager though, like, <laughs> like with or the Drew Hill's manager. That's not hard, you know. Well, if it escalates and you need Bond, you, you know. know who to call. <laughs> I'm calling Drew Hill to get me out. Any last announcements? Where can the people? Find, well, I don't know if you want to be found yourself, but uh, yeah, don't go looking for me. But if you want to go look for the Bond Fund, uh, you can find us at ChicagoBond.org, and we're on Twitter at at Chai Bond Fund. Any specific call to actions right now? Uh, big thing is come out Monday to the 26th in California at noon. Well, right. Thank you so much for being here, Matt. Yeah, it's thanks always for having such me. a joy to see your bearded, wonderful face. <laughs> what a pleasure. We are we are Ergo Radio. We'll be back next week with a special birthday episode. Ooh. Uh, talk to you next week. Much love to the people. Peace. <laughs>